Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, did you know that Black African American and Latino children and adults are less likely to learn to swim and far more likely to drown than their white counterparts? I actually did, Aunt Carol, and a lot of the reasons why are based on factors like not having access to swimming pools, traumatic experiences with water, our hair, and also the very strange myth that Black people's bones are more dense than other races, which means we can't float. And for any of our listeners who watch the show Blackish will remember an episode where Dre, the dad, actually believed that, and that's why he never learned to swim. So they actually cover that crazy myth. But those stats are, that's scary. Well, once again, my dear niece, you've done your homework. Now, here's another piece of information you probably already know. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention also report that between 1999 and 2010, Black African-American children drowned in swimming pools at a rate of 10 times higher than their white peers. Now, these stats are troubling and true. But swimming is a life skill that we all need, not just for fun and exercise, but as usual, systemic racism has a role in why these scary stats exist. Well, that's what we talk about, Courtney, systemic racism, and you're exactly right. America has a history of systemically racist laws, as well as policies, practices, and procedures that have excluded non-whites and particularly Black African-Americans from recreational swimming pools and beaches. Well, the world is 70% water, so swimming has been necessary for over a millennia. But when did America begin to view swimming as a recreational activity? Well, you know, Courtney, American swimming pools got their start in the late 19th century, and they started as public bathhouses. They were indoor and outdoor pools of clean water, and they were supposedly designed to stem the spread of disease and instill values of cleanliness in the nation's growing immigrant population. But at that time, the idea of having pools designed purely for competitive and leisure swimming were largely the realm of the wealthy elite whites. And that even goes into like my age group. If you had a pool, you were like the coolest kid in school, but it was rare to be a black family with a pool. Like my little sister grew up with a pool, but it was rare. Well, in the early 20th century, progressive era reformers began to champion swimming facilities in working class areas as a way to solve social problems in American cities. Now, their reasoning was if you gave a community safe, wholesome opportunities to socialize and exercise, juvenile delinquency and social strife would fall. So... As that, with a backdrop, public municipal pools boomed between the 1920s and the 1940s, and the national swimming fad really took off, and it inspired millions of people to take to the waters for recreational swims and to go to the pool decks for tanning and just hanging out and socializing. Then, 
thanks to the Works Progress Administration, this was a New Deal agency formed during the Great Depression, suddenly almost every city and town in America had a public pool that was supposed to be open to swimmers of all classes. And these pools soon became community centers. And this accessibility caused many issues when it came to physical education. Now, our listeners will remember last episode, the story that we shared about Glen Echo Park and the attempts to desegregate the park. Um, now, from the 1890s to the 1920s, the park really had no issues with Black people and family and church groups coming to the park. But it wasn't until 1930 when the park's crystal pool was added that the park truly began its efforts of segregation, which meant not only no summertime fun for uh, African-American families with children, but African-American students who were learning to swim or needed access to the the water had to be bused all the way into Washington, D.C. Since Glen Echo was privately owned, they allowed white students to swim, Montgomery County white students to swim. But like I said, black students had to go an hour in to Washington, D.C. just to swim, even though a pool was really, really close. Well, that's not unusual. Glen Echo Park is just one example of exclusion based on race. As usual, fear of the other and racial stereotyping kicks systemic racism into high gear. Because these spaces provoked intense fears of racial mixing, white people had visions of scantily clad bathers flirting and playing together, raising the specter of interracial sex and endangered white women. You know, that old trope. Now, some whites believe that recreation only could be kept virtuous and safe by excluding Black African-Americans and promoting a sanitized and harmonious vision of white leisure. So white teens don't flirt. But in any way, I digress. Let's move on forward. (laughs) Okay, and we (laughs) will. Now, swimming pools and beaches were among the most segregated and fought over public spaces in the North and the South. White stereotypes of Blacks as diseased and sexually threatening served as the foundation for this segregation. City leaders justified segregation uh, because they pointed out fears of fights breaking out if whites and Blacks mingle, and racial separation for them equaled racial peace. So segregation as a safety method, just like the mafia uses protection rackets to protect you from them. Well, yeah, it does. It does sound a little like the mafia. Now, these fears were actually self-fulfilling prophecies since often white teenagers attacked black swimmers after activists or city officials opened public pools to black African-Americans. For example, whites threw nails at the bottom of the pools in Cincinnati. They poured bleach and acid in pools with black bathers in St. Augustine, Florida, and they beat them up in Philadelphia. Now, in the late 1940s, there were major swimming pool riots in St. Louis, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles. And I reached out to someone who I would think would be an expert in this area. My dad, who grew up in Pittsburgh, he was able to give me some personal insight on two pools that he was very aware of that made it clear that Black swimmers were not wanted. One was Bluedale and the other was Highland Park. He explained that his older brothers often found themselves having to defend themselves and fight back against both white teens and adults at the pool. 
And in a 2015 article from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, it explains a bit more what not only my uncles experienced, but many black swimmers faced attending these supposedly already segregated pools. Uh, white swimmers imposed a de facto segregation through violence and intimidation at those pools. So basically, it didn't have to be a law. You had this series of um, violent actions that were carried out by the kind of like hoodlums in the neighborhood. Is that correct? Yes. Like, for example, white swimmers attacked black swimmers with rocks, clubs, um, even their fists and sometimes knives. And the police who were meant to serve and protect these swimmers often arrested the black victims and charged them with inciting a riot. Well, here we go again, the victim being victimized. Highland Park Pool is a good example of how legally sanctioned segregation wasn't in force, but the policies, practices, and procedures were clear that non-whites weren't welcome, and white swimmers imposed and enforced racial segregation through the kind of violence and harassment you just described. And let's not forget another way to keep pools all white. And that was in the way neighborhoods were segregated. Marginalized families were excluded from or driven out of white communities where the pools were located. Black African-Americans were told to swim in their separate pools, which were hardly equal to the new well-appointed pools found in the white neighborhoods. Now, this reminds me, and once again, we're weaving that thread through all of our episodes on real estate and neighborhoods. White flight included swimming pools as a carry-on bag. Yep, Courtney, it all weaves together. That's why it's called systemic. And people fought against it on various fronts, housing, education, healthcare, and even recreation and leisure, as we're talking about today. Now, although there were years of protests and civil rights litigation, pool-related exclusion and violence continued for years. Now, as happy as desegregation of pools sounds, I know that, and we'll talk about it as we go on, it did not happen as smoothly as it should. Well, you're right, Courtney. One of the most insidious incidents involving swimming took place in Chicago and was one of the many massacres of Black African-Americans in what became known as Red Summer. On July 27, 1919, a 17-year-old African-American boy named Eugene Williams was swimming with friends in Lake Michigan, and he crossed the unofficial barrier located at 29th Street between the city's white and black beaches. At that point, a group of white men threw stones at Williams, hitting him repeatedly, and he eventually drowned. Now, his death and the police's refusal to arrest the white men who witnesses identified as causing it sparked a week of rioting between gangs of black and white Chicagoans concentrated on the South Side neighborhood surrounding the stockyards. Now, when the riots ended on August 3rd, 15 whites and 23 black African-Americans had been killed and more than 500 people injured. An additional 1,000 black families lost their homes when they were torched by rioters. And if Red Summer sounds familiar, we have talked about it in so many episodes from the Elaine Massacre. Uh, I could count many, many episodes, especially in our massacre series, but this was the tipping point. This event, starting with swimming, was the tipping point for Red Summer. Yep, it certainly was. And it's ironic that violence around swimming pools and beaches was commonplace through most of the 20th century, Courtney. And I believe you have a story about a notorious incident in St. Louis that somehow has escaped the history books. 
Well, and Carol, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a totally different story planned for this episode. But as it often happens during my research, I will find something that's triggering, like a picture or, or, or article. And the picture I found disturbed me to the point that I had to know more. The photo was of a man on the ground holding his wounded head, surrounded by a group of white men, one with their foot on the man's back, like kicking him over because he was trying to sit back up. Another photo showed a man standing on his own porch his shirt stained darkly by his own blood as a white mob stands in the foreground, their backs to the person who's actually viewing the man on the, the porch, ready to inflict him more harm. And Boy, was, those those photographs were really vivid and scary. I can understand why you would want to see a little bit more about what was going on here. Exactly. And the St. Louis Star uh, Telegram newspaper had an article that went with these photos. And this is what the article reads. Shortly before 9 p.m., the crowd spread out and extended a company front stretching from west to east and moved on the run northward up Kasuth Avenue. And as another shout went up that a Negro had been seen near Kasuth, the reporter, the reporter who had reached the scene almost with the crowd found another Negro being attacked from all sides. He was beaten on the sidewalk leading to his own residence on the 3700 block of Kasuth. He was pushed, shoved, kicked, struck with clubs until he finally sought refuge on his own porch until he could be rescued by the police that could take him to Homer G. Phillips Hospital. As the police drove off with the man, there were numerous expressions of amazement from the crowd that he could have lived after the punishment he received. Why, I kicked him twice in the head myself, a 16-year-old boy remarked incredulously. Courtney, this is terrifying. I, I'm taken aback once again by the terrible violence and awful behavior of people here. What was this all about? Well, that night was Tuesday, June 21st, 1949. And if anybody knows, June 21st is the start of summer. It's the longest day of the year. And that account comes from a newspaper that no longer exists. And I said it was a Star Telegram. I'm, let me correct myself. It was the St. Louis Star Times. Now, the place that all this started was the Fairgrounds Park in North St. Louis. It was the scene of a race riot that St. Louis itself had tried, has tried hard to forget. Now, St. Louis has not only given America some of the best Black excellence it's seen in the 20th, 19th and 21st centuries. They've given us Miles Davis, Josephine Baker, Chuck Berry, even previous podcast subject Annie Malone launched her beauty school and philanthropic empire from the streets of St. Louis. And for millennials, the rapper Nelly put St. Louis on the map with his mixture of hip hop, rap, and country music. But there's another side to this city, which is often called the gateway to the West, but it's a side that many of its residents refuse to acknowledge. And it's a history of racism. Who can forget Mark and Patricia McCloskey, nicknamed uh, Karen and Ken, the St. Louis couple who gained notoriety pointing guns at social justice demonstrators in 2020? No, oh, I remember them well. So <laughs> St. Louis rears its ugly head. <laughs> Mike Brown, who hailed from Ferguson, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, was murdered in 2014 by a white police officer while unarmed. So if you hear people say, hands up, don't shoot, that's where that comes from. 
not only was it a terrifying moment, it sparked uh, days of protest and riots, but it also put many people on their journey of activism with the Black Lives Matter movement and organization that shares his name. Now, one of the myths the white population of St. Louis likes to believe is that it never went through that crucible of violence that other cities suffered as Jim Crow began to die. Oh, but, denial, denial. Hmm. Well, if you don't say it, it's not real. <laughs> now, Mary C. Matter, who teaches a course on the history of African-Americans in St. Louis for Washington University, describes the city's complacency as follows. The people in St. Louis really like to believe that we're pretty decent about race relations. We've only made a few missteps. Missteps. Oh, boy. I think you're going to tell us something that's way bigger than a misstep. A trip, a fall, and, a, and some scary stuff is to follow. Now, it's easy to forget or dis disbelieve that in one night in 1949, as many as four to 5,000 white residents of St. Louis roamed the grounds of Fairground Park and the surrounding areas, assaulting any African-American unlucky enough to be in the vicinity. So how do we get here? Well, we're talking about swimming, so let's start with the history of this infamous pool. Now in 1912, three years after the St. Louis Fairgrounds became a public park, the city began constructing a swimming pool where the fairgrounds amphitheater once sat. It would be the first municipal pool in the city's history. And just as the old amphitheater was the largest of its kind, this pool would break world records. With a diameter of 440 feet, it could host between 10 and 12,000 swimmers a day. And for the pool's first 37 years of existence, it remained for whites only. But so, so basically 10 to 12,000 white people, yes. nobody else. Nobody else. Now, with the federal courts uh, upholding the decision that segregation of public golf courses were a, was a violation of the 14th Amendment, a decision had to be made. And that decision was made by John J. O'Toole the city of St. Louis's director of public welfare. Now he made the decision to desegregate the pool, but he didn't really consult anyone. He just blatantly stated, I can't oppose anyone from lawfully using the swimming pool. They, meaning black people, are citizens too. So on Friday, June 17th, 1949, with like I said, no attempt to consult any other staff in city government, O'Toole officially desegregated the pool. The Fair Park swimming pool was now integrated and that integration was to begin on the pool's opening day. Now with four days to prepare, O'Toole still consulted no one, not the park staff, not the lifeguards, not even the city police on how best to proceed. Um, and there had also been an incident at another pool called Webster Grove a week before that was supposed to be integrated, but it wasn't. He didn't even take that into consideration. Well, this yeah. sounds like a setup, but anyway, go ahead. To me, it sounds like a setup. Um, here's a quote from O'Toole from the Star Times newspaper. If colored people apply for admittance to the swimming facility, let them in. Hmm. My order is to admit them. Now, the mayor, the city mayor, Joseph Darst, 
only learned about the announcement of segregating the pool when he was questioned by reporters. Mayor Darce feared backlash by white citizens and he sought to limit the press coverage of the announcement. However, local news uh, outlets broadcast the desegregation story in the front headlines of all its papers. It was on the radio, it was everywhere. And, that, and the announcement was on June 21st, the pool would be open, open to everyone. And when mm. we come back, I will give you and our listeners a detailed timeline and some eyewitness accounts of what happened the day Fairground Park pool was desegregated. Well, Courtney, this doesn't bode well. I've taught a lot of classes on collaborative leadership and working as a team. So clearly, John J. O'Toole is someone who desperately needed that kind of training. It's For me, it's just hard to believe he failed to realize something as sensitive as desegregating a pool needed careful planning, coordination, and cooperation among city departments and the media. I, I just can't believe he did not know that. Looks like he just lit a fuse. So when we come back, we'll find out if things exploded. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Alrighty, Courtney, we are back. And when we left off for the break, John J. O'Toole had made a very volatile decision. What happened next? Well, it could have just been reckless optimism, but when we left off, the announcement had gone forth from the office of John J. O'Toole that the Fairground Park pool would be open to African-Americans, which would be the first time they had done this in 37 years. Uh, The announcement was made with, like you said, very poor planning and no insight at all. But when the pool opened that afternoon around two o'clock, 30 Black mostly boys uh, and 200 white swimmers lined up, eyeing each other nervously and then began to swim. Now, as the swimmers entered, they played uneasily, maintaining a careful distance, separating themselves naturally. Now, within an hour, however, teenagers began to arrive. White teenage boys began to arrive dressed in t-shirts and jeans. Think, you know, Rebel Without a Cause, Arthur Fonzarelli, that, that type of look. They came for one purpose, though, to protect their turf. I didn't know that they owned the pool, but they felt they owned the pool. They leaned against the fence surrounding the pool, jeering and shouting racial slurs. And before long, the crowd grew to an angry mob. A 16-year-old African-American teen uh, named Sherman Lee White was also standing by the fence, minding his Ooh. own business. This is going to be a bad place to be standing, I can tell. Uh, if only I had a time machine. But he wasn't standing for long. Soon he was on the ground being hit with a pipe so severely he had to be rushed directly to Homer G. Phillips Hospital, which luckily was only a few blocks away. Now, the African-American boys in the pool looked around trying to find a safe exit, but all they saw was a sea of faces 
filled with malice and hatred and wanting to teach them a lesson about entering somebody else's turf. Now, after that swim session ended, a custodian ushered the African-American children and teens into the changing room as they dressed. And one person, and I, I forgot their name, but there was a quote from a black swimmer that said people, adults were spitting on them mm. um, as they walked to the train, uh, to the changing rooms. Um, now, a, a few police officers showed up to escort the kids out of the park, but the park was so big and the mob was getting bigger as they followed these children. Let's keep that in mind. They're teens and children out mm. of the park. They would play a real sick game of tag. A, a white teenager would gain some courage and run past the police, punch an African-American and then run back to the crowd. Kind of like, a, like I said, a really sick game of tag. Mm. But this isn't really one of those stories where the black people are sitting by. Between the first and second swim session, four African-American men came to the pool angrily and demanded to see the manager. One of them- So, told- so let me get this straight. So the, there was a swim session, a first session, Mm-hmm. And then they closed the pool. Is that what they did? And then yes, they opened you could, it again. You could swim from two to four because the park was so big. Uh, the pool was so big that to clean it out and, and do all that stuff. I worked in a water park. Cleaning out a pool is gross, especially a public pool. So they had to get some time to recalibrate all the chemicals. And they were going to open again at seven o'clock. Oh, okay. So this gave the crowd a chance to do what crowds do exactly now after the first swim session like i said four african-american men came to the pool and were very upset they demanded to see the manager and one of them told the police that hey i'm a war veteran and if these people want trouble they can have it so and he also warned my kid brother just got beat up by some hoodlums if you want a race riot you'll have one and that was at 4 30 in the afternoon Oh, very prophetic. (laughs) Very (laughs) prophetic. 4.30. All right, let's go. Now, the pool reopened at 7 p.m. And remember, this is the the longest day of the year, so it is still bright light outside. So the pool reopened at 7 for its evening swim, and that's when things got even scarier. Now, Eddie uh, Silva has an article called The Longest Day, which is an amazing coverage of this event. And it helped me do a lot of my research. Now, he interviewed white residents of St. Louis who remember the pool riot very vividly. Jim Wilson remembers playing baseball. He remembers it, like he says, like it was yesterday. A rumor was spreading around the neighborhood that Blacks were coming over Van Evener Avenue in trucks. The bigger kids grabbed baseball bats And there was a movement of people, white people, moving towards Fairgrounds Park. John Berg was nine years old and he was playing in the park with his father. And he described seeing a surreal scene of thousands of white people streaming into the park, many clutching baseball bats along Natural Bridge. Teenagers ripped limbs from trees that they were going to use as clubs. An African-American boy was surrounded. One of the whites took a two by four with one end carved into a handle and smacked the boy in the head as if it was a baseball. Berg was sure, at, even at nine years old, that that boy must have been killed. Mm. Now, a Star Times photo shows mothers carrying their babies along as if there was no way they were going to miss the excitement. 
teenagers roamed with baseball bats and broomsticks. A 65-year-old woman patrolled the park with a junior-sized baseball bat. The scene held the intensity of a mythic last stand. So if anyone has ever seen Lord of the Rings, that battle in front of the gates of, of Mordor, people were up like they were fighting some enemy and it was just kids wanting to swim. Well, and the crazy thing too, Courtney, is this sounds like those descriptions we have of the um, lynchings where people just showed up, you know, they grabbed their babies and all the old ladies and they headed to the park for the, you know, the lynching. So they were coming out for violence and excited about it. Yeah, there's a, a saying that's from Game of Thrones that says we choose violence or I, they chose violence that day. Hmm. <laughs> the people who chose violence. Now, I will warn our listeners, there's some rough language. I'm going to beep out the most of the expletives, but just there's a little rough language and some more violence. So trigger warning if we have some young historians listening. Now, teenagers huddled around the pool as 7 p.m. approached. This is a waiting party. We're waiting till it gets dark. A reporter overheard one of the teens say, I'll kill the bastards, another boy replied. Suddenly a shout rose up from the crowd. There's some N-words over there. Like a vengeful wave, the crowd surged from east, from the east to the south side of the pool, encircling three African-American boys. One of the boys pulled a knife out to defend himself, and I do not blame him one bit at all. But he didn't even get the chance to defend himself. He was showered with fists as blows fell on him. Clubs, bats, sticks, fists battered his body and his friends as well, and he fell to the ground. A policeman tried to come in between the boy and the mob, but he tripped and fell and landed on the boy he was trying to protect. By that evening, the crowd had grown from those unruly teenage boys, the mothers with babies and whoever else, to 5,000 baseball fans. Oh my goodness, everybody with a weapon. Who, was arri- who were arriving from the Cardinals game that night. The riots only got worse and they did not stop until after midnight. Now, miraculously, it wasn't reported that there were any deaths, but it ultimately took 12 hours and between 150 to 400 police officers and reports vary to quell the violence. At least a dozen people were hospitalized with injuries. 10 of those were African-American. And again, these are reports that were reported. So we don't know what, you know, people just tended to themselves or just said, hey, I'm not even going to bother because it's too dangerous. Of the reports, we know that 10 African-American people were injured and eight people were arrested, three white and five black for inciting the violence. Out of all those people, 5,000 folks descended on a handful of kids and only a handful get arrested. Hmm. And it wasn't just the kids. There was a gentleman who just stepped off a streetcar and mm. got jumped it just whoever if you were black and you were out and you were by the pool god help you because this was going crazy and then for the white population a lot of them say well you know a white kid got stabbed and the, but the children at the pool did not start this violence and their parents were defending them and they were defending their neighborhood so the argument of well they were doing it too it, it doesn't fly here Well, and it's unequal numbers. We certainly didn't have 5,000 Black African-Americans against 5,000 whites. Exactly. Now, in an effort to prevent further violence and avoid, you know, the challenge of integration, the mayor who had just learned about all this from 
the reporters asking him, hey, what are you gonna do about the pool? Immediately reinstituted segregation at all municipal pools, including the fairground pool. Mm. Now in 1950, members of the local NAACP chapter filed a lawsuit against the city of St. Louis in an effort to desegregate the city's municipal pools once and for all. They argued against the injustice of black citizens having to pay taxes on recreation areas that they could not use and also criticized the concept of separate but equal facilities for blacks and whites. The NAACP won the lawsuit and the city integrated all its pools and parks in 1950. And this lawsuit would serve in part as the basis for the Supreme Court ruling to desegregate schools in 1954 in Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, Life Magazine devoted two pages to the riot in its July 4th, 1949 issue and include, included full page photos of African-Americans being surrounded by whites who had just beaten them. Now, one of the African-American swimmers at the fairground pool that day, Walter Hayes, later recalled in his senior years, he was in his 70s, when he, you know, well, he's in his 70s now, when he was asked this, he said, I never knew that hatred actually traveled in waves. I could feel and see the hate waves, similar to heat waves coming at you on a hot sunny day in the desert, coming from that crowd. It was an eerie Oh, wow, Courtney, you know, I, I just can't imagine how children would have felt faced with a mob like that simply because they wanted to swim. And, you know, it's ironic that Walter Hayes described that hate as coming in waves. That's actually an apt metaphor for swimming water and beaches. And he felt the waves not of the cool water in the pool, but the hate coming off that crowd. And it always baffles me. It's children. It's not adults. It wouldn't even be a right if it was adults. But these were just kids wanting to cool off on the first day of summer. But mm -hmm. Aunt Carol, didn't the 1964 Civil Rights Act put an end to segregation and racially sanctioned exclusion in public spaces like pools and beaches? Well, Courtney, on paper, it did. But municipalities followed different strategies intended to keep the racial peace by maintaining segregation, just like we heard from this mayor you just talked about. And here's something really hard to believe. I consider cutting off your nose to spite your face. But some municipalities and cities simply filled in their pools. They backed up the concrete truck and filled in the pools leaving more affluent residents the option of putting backyard pools in, at their homes. Now, another strategy to keep Black African-Americans out was financial. Public pools started to create membership clubs and charge fees, which acted as a barrier to filter out anyone a pool manager felt was unfit. Wow, racist, illegal, and petty. All of the above, all of the above. Now, another thing that did away with the uh, swimming, uh, public swimming pools was the increase of gated communities and homeowners associations. We talked about these the last time, uh, how those helped to eliminate the uh, skating rinks and some of the amusement parks. It was called uh, privatopia. Now, another factor contributing to the decline of public recreation areas was also the Federal Housing Administration, which by the mid 19 60s 
actually openly discourage public ownership of recreation facilities. Instead, they promoted private ownership uh, of these areas, and uh, they tried really hard to make sure these were put in into plan developments with private pools and private tennis courts. Now, this theme of privatopia is just another tentacle of systemic racism. It's like a, a hydra. You cut one head off and 10 more grow. Um, but it seems that it's segregate, if segregation can't be upheld illegally, it's just changed to something else that isn't illegal, but with the help of systemic racism is often unattainable for many African-Americans. Yep, yep. Systemic racism is that nebulous, hard-to-pinpoint veil that hangs over everything in American society. White flight to the suburbs sounded the death knell for many municipal polls as the white middle class began to move from the cities to the suburbs, and they put their money into private pools. So once there were fewer patrons of public pools, you know, like in the urban center, uh, centers, uh, that meant less justification for funding their upkeep. So it's a cyclical uh, argument here. Uh, cities began to underfund pool maintenance, so the pools became dilapidated. And rather than to pay for pools, cities began to close them down. Which takes us back to those scary stats. If children in urban areas don't have access to a pool, they will never learn to swim, which could lead to them drowning. Exactly. Without free public municipal pools in neighborhoods, few black and brown kids can learn how to swim. Now, today we can see the impact of racial stereotypes and swimming segregation since closed public pools and other recreational facilities began to degrade in the urban centers. You'd be hard pressed to find the types of elaborate swimming pools in city centers that were once so common in the 40s and 50s. Now, meanwhile, the new private swim clubs that arose in majority white suburbs shut out the non-white members with high membership fees and exclusive membership requirements. Some clubs even banned people of color outright. Uh, they shut them out by allowing members who lived only within a certain distance, thereby using racist, racist housing policies to ensure an all-white membership. Now, the appeal of club pools provides the assurance of not having to swim with Black African-Americans as you would if you went to a public pool. And what we see today is most private club swimming pools have an almost exclusively white membership. Now, I can speak from experience because your Uncle Clyde and I live in an almost white neighborhood that boasts a clubhouse with several swimming pools and a tennis court. All of these are limited to residents' use. Needless to say, Courtney, the color of those pools and courts is pretty one-sided. And my mom lived in a neighborhood in Arlington, Texas that provided the same amenity, and they were very strict about who could swim there. But in the age of social media, how many viral videos have we seen where African-Americans are questioned or even had the police called on them for swimming in an area where a white person thought they didn't belong? Right. And sometimes those uh, folks were actually residents of those neighborhoods. Now, even today, there are moments when one hears the direct echo of the earlier desegregation struggles we talked about. In uh, 2009, 2009, for example, the owner of a private swim club in Philadelphia excluded Black children attending a Philadelphia daycare center, saying that they would, quote, change the complexion of the club. 
It's an interesting choice of words. Very interesting. Now, in 2015, to bring it closer home in the wealthy town of Plano, Texas, just outside of Dallas, where I live and where you used to live, police targeted Black teenagers attending a pool party. And I vividly recall seeing the photograph of a little petite Black African-American teenage girl being body slammed to the ground by a burly police officer. Now, another incident just in 2020 involved a Black African-American mother and son who were asked to leave a Florida pool simply because they were talking across the lap lines. Well, and Carol, I definitely remember that young girl getting slammed to the ground. And I'm like, did it take all that? I, I get teenagers rowdy having a party, but there was something about that grown man slamming that girl to the ground that just, uh, it just, it bothered me and just made me so angry. Maybe that's why we're here. Um, but there are people who are not who are fighting not only to end the stereotypes about Black people in swimming, but open up the accessibility to swim. Paulana Lamonier, founder of Black People Will Swim, says that swimming is an act of resistance. The program was launched in March 2020 when Lon Monier, a journalist and former swim coach, grew increasingly frustrated by biases permeating the community. Uh, she's heard everything from her Black students say, girl, you know we don't swim, or people being ultimately terrified to put their toes in the water. Now, Black People Will Swim takes a four-pronged approach to helping swimmers F-A-C-E their fears fun, awareness, community, and education. Lon Lanier explains how Black people will swim, aims to dismantle that longstanding Smith myth that Black people can't swim, using everything from private swim lessons to hair care classes for protecting Black hair in the water. Well, Courtney, I certainly uh, applaud her efforts. It's much needed. And fortunately for me, I attended a college that required every student either to take a swimming class or pass a swimming proficiency test or they couldn't graduate. It didn't matter how high your grade point average was, you need to prove that you could swim. Now, I'll admit I didn't like the requirement, but today I'm happy it was in place because I feel comfortable in the water and I know I can save myself if necessary. And when we bought our house, it had a pool and I wasn't worried one bit about having the pool and whether or not it was dangerous because I knew how to swim. Now, I was one of the lucky ones, Courtney, but as we've pointed out, systemic racism continues to plague America even in something as innocent as taking a dip in a pool or going to the beach. For instance, in her paper, Still Drowning in Segregation, Limits of Laws in Post-Civil Rights America, civil rights attorney and legal professor Tanya Lavelle Banks drew a somber conclusion. She says, ironically, those groups for whom public swimming pools were initially created Working class and impoverished families in densely populated urban areas are today the groups with the most limited access to swimming facilities. Wow, and Carol. And I was lucky too. In high school, that was a requirement to graduate as well. Senior year, physical education, you had to learn how to swim. And I tell people, I know enough to save my own life. Uh, but I come from a family of people who can't swim. I want to get my mom to get swimming lessons, but people, please learn how to swim. It can save your life. 
But until next time, our in-between swimming lessons, please visit us at our website. You can catch up on old episodes. You can send us a shout out. You can even rate the episode if you so choose. And that website is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.